Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Saturday, May 1st, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. This evening, we're talking with Ethan Michelle Gans, who was the Alliance Party candidate for the Houston, Texas City Council in 2019. She is a well-connected political organizer in Houston in both the gay and animal rights communities. She's also a passionate advocate for political reform and ranked choice voting, and she describes herself as socially liberal and fiscally conservative. I'll join that club. Ethan Michelle is a nationally certified journeyman pipe fitter, an intermediate rigger, a certified personal trainer, a sports nutrition specialist, and a water safety instructor. She has an AA from Houston Community College in the Humanities with a concentration in Global Studies, and she's all set to graduate from the University of St. Thomas this year with a BA in Political Science, minor in International Studies, and a concentration in Law and Policy. Her senior thesis focuses on the effect of political rhetoric on people's thoughts and emotions. Ethan Michelle, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Hey, thanks. Um, it's I'm glad to be here. Good, good. You know, um, I, I have to ask you first, you're a pipe fitter, a rigger, and I mean, what, did you get bored and decide to go to law school and then run for office? Uh, you know, every story is every story is unique, but um, this one's really unique. Uh, what drove you to take the path from pipe fitter and rigger and personal trainer and sports nutrition specialist and water safety instructor to running for office? That's a pretty remarkable journey. What drove you on that journey? Well, um, okay. Well, I was working maintenance out at a plant. Um, I was actually working for a contractor, so. Um, you know, I work for the contract and the contractor work for the plant. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that plant had some dirt, real dirty chemicals. And so we weren't mm-hmm. allowed to wear our outside clothes into the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we went in, we had to change into uh, their chemical clothes and we had to take those off before we left. And we had, uh, you know, they had a, a dressing room and they had lockers in the dressing room Mm -hmm. and they would, they would wash the clothes. They would come and drop them off once a week and we'd have a whole week's worth in our locker. And, you know, we'd throw them in the dirty clothes every day when we were finished and then they'd bring us a new set every week. Okay. Well, um, I was the first non male, Mm -hmm. uh, person that, that, that contractor had sent out to that, place well they did they only had one dressing room so i was dressing in Mm. the dressing room that's where my that's where my locker is sure you know that's where my clothes are i mean Mm. i'm supposed to stand outside the dressing room and ask some guy hey will you go open my locker and get my clothes out and bring them to me please and then i'm supposed to go find somewhere else to change no i'm just going to go into the locker room like everybody else and change my clothes. Sure. Well, one of the guys complained mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was in there changing clothes with the uh, cis men. Right. And so uh, I was asked not to change clothes in there. I was told I could change clothes in the public bathroom. And I told them that I did not find that to be an acceptable place sure. to change my clothes, that I thought that was actually quite gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that they had to do better. And so they gave me the safety guy's office. So whenever I had to change my clothes, I still had to go get somebody to go get my clothes out of the locker, oh, bring God. them to me. Yeah. Then I had to go throw the safety guy out of his office to change my clothes. Yeah, boy. Um, and then I had to do at, at the end of the night, at the end of the day, I had to do the same thing. Well, anyway... I just, the, the plant had a female, uh, locker room, a dressing room, mm-hmm. but I wasn't allowed to use it because I worked for the contractor. The contractor didn't have one. Oh, so wow. I went and asked the safety guy for the plant if I could, uh, use their dressing room mm-hmm. so that I would have a place to dress. And so he said, well, let me, let me go talk to some people and I'll get back to you. 
Well, a couple weeks later, he came back to me. He's like, hey, you've been okay. Does starting Monday, you can uh, start using the dressing room. He said, come on, I'm going to give you a tour. So he comes and gives me a tour of the place that I, I'm going to be allowed to use. This is on Friday, right? Okay. Be allowed to use this on Monday when I come back to work. An hour later, I was laid off. Wow. Do you think it, it was because of that issue that you brought I was up? laid off uh, officially because of a reduction of force. Hmm. Well, that, um, but that's what they told you, right? Do you, do you think it had anything to do with um, the issues that you raised with the with the dressing rooms? I definitely think it had to do. I was the first non-cis male worker that they sent out there that was at all, ever. And they didn't have the facilities for me, and they weren't willing to let me share the facilities they had with the guys because somebody complained. Oh, boy. Okay. Wow. And I mean, so, was there anybody yeah, else? I definitely think it had something to do with that. I mean, those mm -hmm. those kind of jobs come and go anyway. I mean, when you're building stuff mm -hmm. and maintaining stuff, basically, you're, you're, you're basically, especially if you're building new construction, you're mm -hmm. just building. You're just working yourself out of a job. The faster you work, the better you work. The faster you don't have a job, and you got to go because once once you finish building it, it's built. Right. Now you got to go right. build something else. Right. <laughs> so you know you, you move jobs anyway. But I definitely think it had. I mean, they they laid me off an hour. Why did they go through all that? The people talked to each other. Yeah. It's not like they didn't know what was going on. So why did they let him show me all that and do all that if they were just going to lay me off that day anyway? Was there anybody else let let go at the same time so they could say that it was a truly a reduction in force, or or was it just you that was let go? On that day, yeah, I think it was just me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Of course, nobody would would admit to this, right? Yeah. No, of course not. Yeah. So so you get you you lose your job and then. You, you you enroll in school. I mean, you, you go and uh, go to law school or something. Was that, did that have... Well, um, I haven't gone to law school yet. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, you went to, I get, well, you got an AA degree and... Um, yeah, I went to HCC, so I went to the community college. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I have already gone to, I've already gone to trade school, right? Mm -hmm. I went to trade school for two years and, you know, I, I worked in my trade. And uh, I learned a part, I had was learning a second trade. Uh, I was an intermediate in the second trade, um, you know, so, mm -hmm. but when I got laid off, you know, I told my wife, I said, this, these companies, they're just doing whatever because the, you know, it's, it's a right to work state down here in Texas. Yeah. So, so there's, there's no real union strength. There's some union jobs, but, you know, there's not a lot of them. A lot of times the union jobs, you have to travel for them. I don't, you know, it's just there's there's a lot more jobs that are non-union. And uh, with non-union jobs, they really kind of treat you however they want to. Yeah. And, uh, wow. you know, that it's it's a right-to-work state. I mean, you just yeah. don't really have any any recourse. Yeah. A lot of states are like that. I, I know. It, well, you know, I'm in Missouri here. We we struggle with um, with right to work versus a union. It, it, we we've we've been able to hold off um, right to work in the state so far, but the because it's it's come up several times as voter initiatives and referendums, and it gets voted down every single time. But the Missouri legislature, uh, legislature, which is a trifecta of of uh, Republicans continue to bring it up and this has been going on for decades now so um well y'all yeah. fight that because because <clears throat> yeah. basically they can do whatever they want okay i worked at one job um and the 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 welders were making ten dollars an hour more than the pipe fitters and the pipe fitters were mad about it because mm -hmm. sometimes there's a little bit of a wage discrepancy but it's never that much Ten bucks, um, yeah, that's and a lot. so yeah. the pipe fitters decided they were gonna uh unify and stand up against this so they all went into the into the lunch tent mm -hmm. and stopped working and said we're not going to work we want to raise right. they went in there and they said you are all fired unless you go to work right now we don't care we will replace all of you by tomorrow wow and some of them went to work and some of them left yeah 
you know, and that's how that went. Uh, they did not get a raise. Yeah, that's a hell of a position to put people in because, you know, some of these people, they, they may, you know, be young and, and don't have families to support. And, and some of these guys, they, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of got their back up against the wall in a sense, because they have to support a family or they have, you know, they have exactly. payments to make. So it's, exactly. it's really puts everybody in a very difficult position. But on the other hand, 10 bucks an hour, that is a lot of money. That, that's, that's Difference. not chump change. Yeah, I know. Like one, one guy's making 30, the other guy's making 40. They're working together. Usually the, the discrepancy isn't more than between two and four bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if there is one, sometimes they'll make the same. Sometimes the welders will make a little more on a new construction site, but, but they're not going to make $10 an hour more. That's just crazy. I mean, welders out on welders with their own trucks they and out on uh pipelines they make different you know than I'm, i worked in plants above ground mm-hmm. and you you did pipe fitting and and rigging what what is rigging i, I just was always you know somewhat confused about that term is that where you're literally anchoring large equipment and cranes and things like that or what is that yes okay um because as a pipe fitter, sometimes you have to do a lot of uh, bull rigging mm-hmm. where you have to like, you don't necessarily have a crane, but you have like, uh, you know, chain falls or something. And you're trying to uh, get this big old pipe that you can't pick up. You got to have something to hold it up. Mm-hmm. So you got chain falls and stuff around it and you have to rig it into a place or something. And sometimes you have small little cranes like, mm-hmm. you know, and then sometimes you have the big cranes, but. Yeah, I was learning to, to, I could, I, I was, well, I'm not certified anymore because it's been years. I've been in, I've been in school now, but I was certified to, uh, to signal the crane and, uh, I was an intermediate at, at, you know, rigging it up. Wow. So I could rig up the crane and then run up and get the pipe off. And then I could rig the pipe to my own rigging up there. And then I could install the pipe. I just needed a guy to weld it in. Wow. So you, you do all the work and the welder just comes in and, and puts them literally just does the attachment, but you had to, you had, you have to hoist everything in the place basically as a rigger then. Okay. Yeah. But, but riggers, riggers and pipe fitters don't usually like, I didn't have to usually rig up to the, to the, uh, I usually worked as a pipe fitter. I didn't usually have to work as the rigger and rig up to the crane, but I could have. Mm-hmm. But I, I learned that because a lot of times I had to rig from the crane to my rigging so that I could get the pipe installed into the place it mm-hmm. needed to be. And in order to do that, I wanted to know more about rigging so I could be safe and do yeah. it the right way. Absolutely. Well, this, this sort of dovetails into a larger story. Uh, you being um, let go of that job in, in, in under questionable circumstances, and so I'd like to take a larger picture right now because now you, you've you've gone to school. You're you're, you're um, um, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, you have an AA degree. Uh, you're working on a on a BS degree and focusing on um, um, concentrating in, in global studies and political science with a minor in international studies and and um, concentrating in law and policy. So let's let's move to a higher level right now and talk a little bit more about what's going on nationwide. Um, for example, I was just perusing through the ACLU uh, website recently. And I saw this statement that they put on in their website. And this is something that I've, you see this on the news coming up more and more over the last few years. Uh, the ACLU said it this way, and I'll, I'll, call, I'll quote it here. It says, Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in America continue to face discrimination in their daily lives, while more states every year work to pass laws to protect LGBTQ people. uh, The ACLU continues to see state legislatures advancing bills that target transgender people, limit local protections, and allow the use of religion to discriminate. And um, so they go on to give some specific examples of, of dozens and dozens of bills across a lot of states, including Missouri. Of course, I looked up Missouri, my home state here. And um, each one of these bills, they target transgender and non-binary people for discrimination. Uh, examples are uh, barring them outright or, or barring or outright criminalizing health care for transgender youth, 
um, limiting access to the use of appropriate facilities like restrooms, uh, similar to a situation you experience, I suppose, uh, restricting transgender students' ability to fully participate in school and sports, allowing religiously motivated discrimination against trans people, or making it more difficult for trans people to get identification documents with their name and gender. What's going on in this country? I mean, this seems like a major step backwards, a descent, if you will, a descent into the uh, pre-civil rights intolerance. What do you, I'd like to get your take on that. Um, I think it's a push. I think that um, there's a change happening. The mm-hmm. youth isn't putting up with it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's, people are coming together and they want equity. They want equality for everybody. It's, it's, you know, black people and, and brown people and, and, and the LGBTQIA2S community and, you know, religious minorities and just, you know, all kinds of people that are being marginalized in this country mm-hmm. are coming together. And I think they're scared and they have to have a stand and they have to have rhetoric that makes people afraid or angry so that they can you know, prime them and, 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 and focus them on that. And, and, you know, mm-hmm. I think that it's their last big push in the country because I think that it's changing. I mean, the, the boomers are getting older right. and, um, you know, sooner or later, all those, those people that are in their eighties and everything, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they only have a limited amount of time. Right. I mean, and, and the younger generations aren't the same. And so I think they're really trying to push things in that will affect us further past their reach because they feel their power waning. Hmm. Fear-driven. Wow. So that being the case, I mean, what, you've, you've decided to become somewhat political, um, I, well, that's kind of a small word to use somewhat. You've decided to uh, try out for the Houston City Council. Um, what's going on there? I mean, what compels you or what compelled you to run for City Council in Houston? Well, um, <clears throat> I live in Montrose, which is a historically very diverse neighborhood. It is the neighborhood that is LGBTQIA-centered. Um, and, but it's also been historically a place where artists come, where, you know, just people that are different and like something, you know, it used to be a little more bohemian, but it's, it's getting to be where now it's gentrifying. Well, it's been gentrifying for years, but it's the, it's sped up recently. And Mm -hmm. so there's a loss of housing that's decently affordable and when i'm saying decently affordable i'm not talking about the coded word affordable housing what i'm talking about is housing that anybody in that's working class or low or 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 in the lower end of the middle class uh could afford you know i mean i we we the the average one bedroom apartment i think is going for like fifteen hundred dollars a month and it's just absurd and so it's it's we're losing our diversity in the neighborhood. We're losing uh, queer people are being pushed out, mm-hmm. you know, of the neighborhood. They've been being pushed out for years. And, um, you know, I just it, it's like it's fine to have gentrification. That's not necessarily bad. It's good to bring new stuff into neighborhoods and revitalize them. What's not good is to displace people or to um, lose diversity because of that displacement or to uh, disrespect the history of a neighborhood. You know, like, like Freedman's town here, you know, that, that is so historically important. And yet Houston has just let them gentrify that neighborhood so much to where it's just, you know, it's such, it's been pushed into such a small area. It's just so, 
what they've done to it and, and not holding on to their history, just it's not okay, you know? And so I feel like it's important that people find ways, we, we find ways that we integrate our, we can't be pushing people out of neighborhoods. Let's, let's mm. have, you know, multi-economic neighborhoods. Let's have social into, you know, economic integration in, in our, in our uh, neighborhoods instead of, instead of having poor neighborhoods over there and rich neighborhoods over there. Why don't we just have neighborhoods that have a variety of housing costs mm-hmm. and uh, you know, then we can all live together like a community. Yeah, yeah we've um, gentrification is one of those bad words with me personally because I see this happening quite a bit uh, in, in St. Louis. Here we have something somewhat similar. We have the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency establishing offices here, which means uh, they're going into um, a fairly um, depressed area, economically depressed. A lot of renters. A lot of decrepit buildings, a lot of landlords there that are just, um, you know, not doing very much for their for their renters. But and there are people who are owning some of these homes that are are not necessarily in good shape, but it's their neighborhood, right? And so, gentrification is on the surface it looks great. It's like, oh yeah, look at this. The the, the inner city is now you know reviving itself. Not really, because the people, um, and I think what you're experiencing here is that. The people who were there, who were paying reasonable prices for their rent, now suddenly see their rent getting doubled. You say $1,500 a month, um, that's getting pretty high. It's getting pretty uncomfortable, I think, for, for a lot of folks. Well, it's a lot higher than that. That's that's on the, you know, that's that's a lower end average. I mean, I pay a little bit less than that, but I live mm-hmm. in a really old, uh, I live in a fourplex, an old, old house that was turned into apartments. Mm-hmm. Um and I love that kind of living, you know, but it doesn't have all the like updated amenities, so okay. they can't charge quite as much. Um, yeah. But but um, you know, I I like having a mixture of types of housing because that way you can have all different yeah. types of people Diversity. and and yeah, exactly. Yeah, so diversity um, is important. What was your purpose of running for the city council then? I mean, what was what was your what was your game plan there then? Um, well, I had I actually had a housing plan called the my multi economic neighborhoods plan, and mm-hmm. um, I, I I wanted to I felt like Montrose. I mean, it, we've Houston has had some great leaders that are of the LGBTQIA community, but. Um, what I find a lot is that a lot of leaders don't come from the working class. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a disconnect with um, what is reality for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I just don't think that I've been represented. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's a lot of people like me or not like me that also don't feel represented. And so I was just like, somebody has got to do something. If somebody doesn't do something, you know, well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, you're right. It's a, you can only yell at your TV for so long, right? Then you gotta, you gotta get up and do something. Not do nothing. It doesn't change anything. So, so, and I actually, I was gonna, you know, actually I was gonna wait to uh, run till after I graduated from the university. And mm-hmm. I was still going to community college when I ran. I was about, well, I had just graduated from community college when I started my campaign, but I was starting to plan it when I was still going to community college. Mm-hmm. And the way, the reason I decided to run then is because um, this guy named Benjamin Hernandez come to talk to us. And he inspired me he was like, you should run now. You don't need a degree. And it, it's right. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to be represented. We need we need a government of citizenry. Yeah. Our citizenry is very diverse. And our, our government officials need, our elected officials need to look 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 like us, need to represent us. Right. And, and that's just not the, how it's been in the past. It's getting better. It's getting better, definitely. But we still have this idea that that politicians are these, uh, you know, guys or girls in suits that, 
you know, these people in suits that, you know, are businessmen or lawyers or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But we need, we need, you know, people that are truck drivers to be rep- representing yeah. people. We need people that are, you know, cashiers, delivery drivers, teachers, doctors. You know, we need everybody represented, not just, not just the business and not lawyers. Not just the suits, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, I, you know, it, I, decided that I, I decided to run then because it's important that we change what we envision as someone who represents us. You know, when we envision a politician, when we close our eyes and think politician, you know, it's like I've heard people say, you dress for the job you want, yeah, not the job you have. But see, we shouldn't be having to fit a standard to like, like, like that, that's, that's outside of, of who we are, because we're, we're so diverse. Why should we fit into this conformed thing just to represent such a diverse place? It makes no sense to me. We need to change the way we think about that. And that's why I decided to run then instead of waiting till after I finished my degree. Well, okay, so I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit because I was going to ask this question later on, but it seems much more appropriate right now. Um, you were you were a student uh, running for the, the the city council, and and I just did a little bit of digging on you right here. I hope you don't mind, but I actually looked up an article about you. It was in the student newspaper for the University of St. Thomas. I think it's called the Celt Independent or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the very first words were Michelle Gans says she's not a politician. Okay. And so here you are. I mean, you ran for the Houston City Council office in 2019. You are an activist. You advocate for the rights of the LGBTQ community, um, you know, animal rights. You promote you know, ranked choice voting and so on. So, I agree that you, from what I know about you already, um, you're not a politician, not in the modern day corrupted sense of the word politician. You know, you don't take PAC money. You're not on the payroll of big corporations. You're you know, basically campaigned on a shoestring. So in my opinion, and I think I'm just, I'm just basically preaching to the choir here, right? Because you are precisely the type of politician this country needs. So, uh, why not just say yes? You are a politician because you're a politician in a in a new, enlightened, really democratic sort of way. Well, because I think that I think that it I'm more I would be more of an advocate or a public servant. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, politician equates to say maybe leader or something, but. I don't think of it like that. You're not there to lead people. You're there to represent them. Mm-hmm. And so you're a public servant. You're there to serve them, to serve the public good. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I don't like the word politician. I don't, I don't like to identify that way because I'm not that. I'm, and, and I think it's kind of a coded word. You know, it's, when you think of politicians, you, you think of this specific kind of, like you said, corrupted ideal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with that, that kind of coded word comes uh, preconceived feelings and emotions and thoughts and ideas. And but I'm not that, you right. know, and I'm a public servant. And when you think of the word public servant or advocate, you think of something much different than you think of the word politician. Yeah, but that's you have unfortunate different feelings and different thoughts about those words. Yeah, that, that's an unfortunate outgrowth of the way that politics is run generally. And it's not just here in this country. It's, it's, it's the worldwide, too. But uh, that's an unfortunate thing because, um, yeah, I think if you are going to advocate for people, um, that is kind of a leadership position in a sense by default, I would think, because um, most people will, will um, in my experience in life anyways, most people don't have any problems if they feel strongly about something, getting out there and protesting, but they need people to lead them. They need people to call the pro, call for the protest, you know, influential people. Um, and I guess, yeah, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily call them politicians, but you would call them some sort of um, public advocate, um, 
and it is exactly. it is kind of a leadership position. I mean, when you think about it, you're 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 having you you can't uh, you know going way back to the to the to the top of the podcast when you talked about uh, what's going on with with uh, contractors and unions and so on. You can't get a union together unless there is just really it just boils down to a core group of people, maybe just one person or 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 maybe a small group of people that lead and actually. They advocate, but they also have to coordinate and lead, I would think. so. Well, yes, I mean, but but what I meant was when, when you know, a lot of times you, you elect people and then they go and they do their own thing and they make their own decisions and like whatever, y'all, mm-hmm. these are the decisions we made, now y'all live with it. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like they're kind of pulling you and leading you by the, by the nose or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know. I don't want to, it's just, I'm not like that. That's not me. I I want to serve the public good and, and do, I want to, you know, amplify other people's voices that aren't being heard. I want to, you know, create bridges and, and coalitions so people can come together and be the change. We all need to be the change. We all have to work together. It has to be a a team effort and -hmm. whatever, part that I end up playing in that uh, may be a leadership role, but it, I'm not leading them because we're all moving together. Yeah. That's just mm. the role that I end up playing. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, then that being the case, then do you have an interest in running for the Houston City Council again, or do you find yourself um, wanting to do something different, more effective, perhaps? Um. I don't think there's anything more effective than your local city government in mm-hmm. affecting your personal life every day. And um, I don't think everybody realizes how important city government is. Local governments are in yeah. our lives. And, uh, you know, so definitely um, I, I could possibly run again in the future. Okay. I'm not going to hold you to it. I'm just, I'm just sort of uh, curious about that because you, you, you definitely have all the, the, the qualities I would look for, anyways, in a, in a person that, that would, um, that would lead or, or, or advocate for people. Um, most people call it politician, but you don't like that word, so we'll, we'll stay away from it. But I, I definitely think you're, you're, um, you have that passion, and you, and that's, uh, that's a good thing for you to, to think about in the future. Um, so. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Um, you grew up in Louisiana, Reeves, Louisiana. I don't know where that is. That's uh, um, but it's well, I know where Louisiana is. And you, as well as your family, had tremendous challenges when you decided to come out. And how how have those experiences shaped not, not only your political perspective, but but your chosen field of education? Well. <clears throat> I moved, we moved to Reeves when I was in the sixth grade. It was the middle of the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was born in Oklahoma City, um, Oklahoma, and, but my mom was from Louisiana. Um, she, we, she moved us back down to Louisiana uh, when I was a young baby. And uh, so I was raised in the Lake Charles area. Um, we moved up to Reeves after our house got flooded um, in a big flood from the river. Um, I guess it was 86 maybe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was kind of a culture shock to me to move out there because, uh, I had never been to a place that was so white. Mm. I mean, I'm white, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had never been to a place that was that white. Um, and so it was kind of even a culture shock to me, but, mm. um, Living there was kind of uh, the worst <laughs> for really? me. Some people really love it, but I'm I'm not someone that I didn't conform to to the standards or ideals of a normal or, or what what they would consider to be normal yeah. uh, person. <laughs> you didn't fit <laughs> and, in. Yeah. Yes, not at all. Mm-hmm. And and you know, back then when I was a kid, that was the worst thing ever. Nowadays, mm-hmm. I realize not fitting in is a superpower, and and that's great. But back then, it was the worst thing ever. I just wanted to be like everybody else. I, I did. I did have, meet some really great friends. I mean, I have a couple of friends, that, 
several friends that I've been friends with since I was 10 years old and I'm mm-hmm. 45 now. So 35 years, I have several friendships. That's 35 years old. Hmm. Um, <laughs> my friendships are middle-aged, um, <laughs> but mine you are know, even older. <laughs> <laughs> the, the place it, it just was not the place for me. And, um, it's, it's a great place for some people, but it just wasn't the place for me. And, um, I came out, I guess when I was seven, I was 17. I was I graduated from high school, 1993. I was still 17, Mm -hmm. um, because I started school a year early and, um, I had moved out of there and out of my mom's house and everything. Mm -hmm. And I came out, um, and the, the place, well, my mom was really mad that I came out. She felt like I should keep my business to myself because they were, they were all kind of tortured by everybody. My sister and my brother were Mm. five and six years younger than me. So they were still going to school there. And uh, my brother was bullied so much after I came out that he had to change schools. And my sister, she, she uh, kept going to that school, but she talks, she still talks about how, uh, you know, people treated her Mm -hmm. and people cornered her and sometimes bullied her. Mm. And, uh, you know, so so my family was kind of uh, harassed a lot because of me coming out. But I left the town, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I felt like it was the best thing for yeah. me to not be there. <laughs> mm. Right. It's too bad to have to make that kind of decision, though. I mean, it, you're you're being true to yourself and it's not being accepted by the people around you. That's That has to hurt. Well, you know... Yes. And a lot of people go through that and Mm -hmm. everything. Some people have it worse than me. Some people, they have people that, that their, their parents beat them. There's, you know, people that are kicked out of their homes when they're 14 or 15 because they're gay. I, I was Mm -hmm. able to hide mine until I was graduated from high school and then already moved out. But that was because I was afraid of conversion therapy. I was afraid if my parents knew instead of kicking me out, they'd, put me in conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was a whole nother thing. And so I, I didn't want them to know at all until I could get away from there. Mm-hmm. Wow. So you went from there to Houston then? Well, I moved to Houston when I was 21. So I, I, I lived in Lake Charles and, and a couple other places, uh, mm-hmm. when I was younger, but, uh, I moved to Houston when I was 21 in 1997 on Indigenous People's Day in 1997. And uh, then you settled in the Montrose area where presumably you found uh, a home. A uh, yes, yeah. for the first time in my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, I never, I never fit in anywhere. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's interesting then that, that, you know, you've taken your past experience and try to make something positive out of it, right? And getting on the city council to help with um, the, the issues that you're seeing in your Montrose neighborhood at this point and, and wanting to represent the people that you feel are not being represented, that's tied in to everything that you are, everything that you've become up to that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, our, our, our great gay neighborhoods, our neighborhoods, if you will, in, in, in this country are dying out. You know, um, Montrose is the neighborhood of the South. It is historically, mm-hmm. I mean, it is not only that. There, it's so much more than that, but that it, it's, you know, and it's important that our culture and our history is not just wiped away. Mm-hmm. And taken over and gentrified over, you know well, what I'm is saying? It, is it just Montrose that's being gentrified over, and it, and, it, and it, is it only gentrification? No, no. This city, this city's being gentrified in all. It's not just because my ideas I was hoping would help other neighborhoods too. Like Third Ward's being gentrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freedmanstown has been so gentrified. They've really just, you know, hacked away at it. Mm-hmm. Um, just it's. East End. East End is being gentrified, you know, and and like I said, not all things about gentrification is bad. 
mm-hmm. right? It's good to revitalize things and, and bring more money in and, and do new things. What's not good is to displace people and to yeah. wipe away their cultures or, you know. Wipe away their neighborhoods. Just, I mean, that, that's part of who they are, of course. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like Montrose is so so historically inclusive that we have a place for everybody that that wants to be in that kind of neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We just have to make sure that we have the housing for them. Yeah. Right. We because if we only have high end housing, if all they do is flood our neighborhood with high end housing, then nobody but one price point will be able to live here. Yeah. And then where, where does all of our inclusivity and diver, our diversity, our, all our, you know, yeah. culture, all our vibe, where does it go? Well, yeah, that's, that's the problem with gentrification, right? People literally have to move out and they lose the vitality that you see in neighborhoods good and bad, you know, it, it's there, it's, and it's owned by the people that are there. And then when they get displaced, um, it's just, they have to start all over again. And it's really difficult to do, I think. Well, you know, I may have lost my bid for city council, but what I did do is make great, uh, partners. And so other people that ran for city council and other activists that I met, um, We've, we've come together, you know, we've got the Montrose Residents Coalition that has hundreds, like over 600 members. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not just going to let them do whatever. We're going to speak up. We're going to be heard. And, you know, obviously we don't have a lot of law on our side mm-hmm. with, you know, but what we can do is we can make it difficult for people that that want to just bull over our neighborhood if mm-hmm. they don't want to work with the neighborhood and have public input um on huge developments that is going to change the face of our neighborhood um and they want to just come and bully their way in here and and they don't want to do it responsibly and make sure that the infrastructure can take that kind of development and they you know they don't want to make sure that the roadways are you know going to be able to take that kind of development they just want to just come in and make their money and and do their thing well we're not just going to be run over we're going to stand up and we're going to be heard and Mm -hmm. and some of the some of the developers are going to work with us and some may not you know but we're looking for developers that want to be part of the neighborhood that want to be good actors in the neighborhood that want to be responsible developers and uh, we want to re- we're reaching out to the developers and the ones that want to do this and work with us. We're going to do everything we can to be good neighbors with them and work with them and try to, you know, see if they'll help create something great for the future of this neighborhood. You know, it, it sounds almost like you need to have one or more positions on the city council in order to achieve those goals, though, because don't they... Um... Don't they regulate how, uh, or don't they zone places and, and do regulation of, of buildings? Oh, there's no zoning in? in Houston. No zoning. Oh, wow. No zoning. Nope. Oh, that's No crazy. zoning whatsoever in Houston. You can have anything anywhere. Oh, that's crazy. Well, well, it's, yeah. it's good and bad. Uh-huh. It has good things and bad things. It's good because you can have really eclectic neighborhoods. You can have yeah. neat home yeah. businesses and, you know, you don't have to have just business districts. Hmm. Right. But in the same sense, it can be bad because without zoning, anybody can put anything anywhere. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's that's (laughs) sort of what I was getting at, because if you if you have a city council that says, okay, you know, if you don't have zoning yet, maybe you need to start implementing some sort of zoning. And um, I I, I don't know that I'm for zoning. I don't know that. Maybe Mm -hmm. I, I, I might would listen to somebody who had a good. Uh, you know, argument for it and consider mm-hmm. it. But at this point, I don't know that I'm for zoning because I kind of like the mm-hmm. good aspects of it. The problem is what I want is it what I would, I think the city council should do is give incentives to the good actors mm-hmm. and 
um, like whether it's tax incentives or, you know, whatever, gives and in, give incentives to the good actors and uh, try to encourage the developers to be good actors. In a, in, in, in a neighborhood like Montrose, it's mm-hmm. already a, a higher end neighborhood. So they're going to make money no matter what. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't have to maximize all the money the fastest they can right away. Right. I know that the 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 things are going for land is going for so much right now. Uh, it's just it's just so crazy. Yeah. But but, you know, I mean, there's lots of different types of business models. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't okay. have to be a predatory one. Well, how would you, I guess maybe my mind is just stuck on zoning because that's the only way I'm familiar with in terms of how to prevent certain types of construction taking place in certain areas. Um, You know, for example, if you have a builder that comes in and says, I want to put a big block of apartments uh, on this corner and I want to put a big shopping center on this corner and I want, you know, and, and basically gentrify the place, right? Uncontrolled. I mean, doesn't the, the city council, okay, so let's say they don't have any zoning laws, but don't they have to approve all of the, all of these uh, constructions? Not the city council itself, but yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's city uh, departments, mm-hmm. right? There's departments that, I mean, the council has to approve everything, but there's departments too, mm-hmm. like, you know, that work. And there's like a permitting department and, you know, a, oh, okay. Okay. a trash department. They have different departments like that take care of different aspects, even though the, the council, you know, votes on everything and, and has committees and everything. Uh, a lot of the work is done by these departments. Okay. Um, but no, what I was, what I think they should do, like I said, that is offer incentives to good actors um, rather than working to prevent things. Um, I'm more about encouraging the things we want rather than preventing the things we don't want. I'm mm-hmm. more about uh, focusing on the good and envisioning what we can do and uh, trying to find people that connect with that and not you know there's a lot of really great developers out there there's a lot of really great people out there that that you know mm-hmm. will connect with with that idea you know what i'm saying yeah. so yeah. i th- but but as far as how to how to control some of the stuff i do think that they need to have rules about infrastructure i don't think that okay if you have a corner and you you have like a strip center mm-hmm. and you tear down that strip center and you build a high rise well that corners infrastructure the the flooding uh the you know issues or the road issues may not be able to handle that many more people right right? Right. so i don't think that they should be able to just build stuff that they're going to make money off of and the taxpayers have to build the infrastructure and pay for the infrastructure for the the because that building that they built is it, it needs it and they're making private money off that all kinds of money off that building but we as taxpayers have to pay the the price of you know mm-hmm. updating the infrastructure and sure. if, if it doesn't get put on the the cip or whatever then we have flooding issues or we have traffic issues so I think that we need to encourage what I cons- what I call responsible building, responsible development, people that are going to do it with integrity. Do you know of anybody else that's running for city council there that has that you that um, has similar outlooks as you? Well, I'm not running any. I'm not running yet. Uh, the next the next uh, time to run is until 2023. So it's not it's not time to run yet, but. Uh, you know, 2023 is a couple years away yet, but. Um, Are you building up a base of people at this point, a support group that can um, perhaps, um, if not you, somebody else that can take uh, or some other people that can take these positions in the city council? Well, well, I, I, plan, I plan on running again. I plan on running again. I will. I, I don't know which seat I'll run for. I may not necessarily run for the same seat, mm-hmm. but uh, I plan on running again. Good. Um okay. Because because I'm 
called, I'm called to do this. I feel drawn to, this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is my destiny to, mm-hmm. to advocate for people and help people. And, and, you know, to make the government work for everybody in a better fashion and to create a more equitable life for people the best way I can. No. Yeah. See, and I'm not going to call you a politician, but boy, oh boy, I really like your ideas. That's um, um, I like what I like where you're coming from, and um, I like where you're going, and I like the motivation that you have. And so, I'm sure there's other people out there that feel the same way I do. Uh, what can people, those people, do to help out? Uh, people that are listening to this podcast, for for example, any of them that might be located in Houston, uh, who can they get a hold of, and how can they get involved in into uh, get involved in the same sort of um, organizations that are con- that have the same concerns as you? Um, well, there is all kinds of great little or, uh, great organizations um, in in this city. I don't know all of them, um, but I personally um, know people from you know like animal organizations like huts for mutts um you know there's there's organizations for people like like blm houston you know there's there's um pure justice um there's the texas organizing project top there's 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 a lot of really great there's there's the GLBT caucus, the Houston GLBT caucus, the one of the oldest uh, gay caucuses in the country here hmm. in Houston. Okay. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's a lot of really great organizations. I would say people should get out and they should get into their neighborhood and they should become involved. Good. Find something you care about and become involved. If you want to help out with trans people, call, call your politicians call your representatives whatever you want to call them call your people and tell them to stand up against these bills no call everybody speak up in your personal life speak up against hate speech and hate rhetoric even if it's even if it's just just a, a microaggression speak up against it um speak up you know because basically we can fight the laws and we can fight and we can advocate, but we also need to change hearts and minds. Yeah. We need to change it in the culture, you know, and until we have these difficult conversations and we really talk to people and be like, you know, Hey, that's not cool. That's like, you know, for instance, I was, there was this one guy I used to have this uh, one job with this guy was a boilermaker I used to work with. And he was from Mississippi and he was a pretty cool guy. And <clears throat> he was nice to me, which was cool because I'm queer mm-hmm. and not a lot of people were. And uh, <clears throat> one day he started saying racist jokes. Oh boy. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, come on, man, really? <laughs> and so I had to speak up and, and tell this guy, really, that's not okay. Just because I have white skin does not mean you can tell racist jokes to me. That's, that's not okay. Yeah. You know, and so you gotta, you gotta speak up. And that's, that's more important than anything else. You got to speak up because silence is, is going to kill us all. Yeah. Well, and on that note, I was, I was, um, I was kind of holding back on this question because we kind of drifted in a different direction, but now that we're, now that we're in this direction, um, your senior thesis, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it focuses on the effect of political rhetoric on people's thoughts and emotions. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating topic for me to to get my head around, and I'm I'm glad there's actually people out there studying this stuff. Can you tell us more about what what you're discovering in this thesis, um, and, and why you chose to do this uh, your senior thesis on this topic? Well, you know, Trump is an interesting phenomenon to me, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just like I know some really good people, people that are generous, people that are kind, that, that actually fall for, for the rhetoric that, that Trump put out there, Mm -hmm. um, that, that really believed that, that what he was saying was, was 
authentic and true. Yeah. So when he said that people from Latin America are coming here to, you know, rape and mm. murder and, you know, take our jobs and whatever else he said they're supposed to be doing. They're mm-hmm. invading, you know, that's, that's creating fear and anxiety yeah. in people. When people feel fear and anxiety, they are more likely to revert back to their preconceived notions and their biases. We mm-hmm. all have some biases and there's a lot of racism in this country, mm-hmm. even if it's behind the scenes. Yeah. And so like even people that don't really, you know, most you ask anybody, they're like, I'm not a racist. Right. But, but racism isn't just being a KKK member. Yeah. You know, there's, there's levels of racism. There's racial ignorance, mm-hmm. you know, um, that isn't necessarily aggression uh, intended, but, but even still will change how you think about things because you have this bias, this preconceived notion. Yeah. So um, like, for instance, if, if I say to you the words affordable housing, most people are going to think that means housing for people that are experiencing poverty. Right. But it could only mean affordable to any price point, right? Mm-hmm. That affordable housing could could be at different price points because it only means affordable to whatever price point you're at. Right. So, so even but if I say the words affordable housing, they're already coded. They already have this bias, this preconceived notion that that I'm talking about this type of housing. And, and it's, it's that way with, with all kinds of things. And um, when we also have cognitive biases that, that we can't control, like our brain has shortcuts. When new information is entered into our brain, it, it looks to match it with information that we've already had. Sure. So if we've read an article or we were taught something by our parents um, and this information matches that information, um, then we are more likely to just put it into a, a category. And so we may not fully receive it or understand it. And then we put it into this category and then we, you know, that's how it is. And so it's not real communication or at least not clear or concise or effective communication. And so uh, it's really interesting, fear and anxiety can, and anger can all be driving factors to people falling back into these biases um, and these, you know, stereotypes and these preconceived notions. And this can drive division amongst people. Mm-hmm. And um, what I found that was really interesting, I thought, uh, was that a lot of the people, the majority of the people by far, um, that changed their minds that were affected by the narrative, um, that changed their thoughts or their feelings, um, from before and after, uh, they almost all were, were at least college educated of some sort. Hmm. Wow. Um, like between 85 to a hundred I had four different surveys, but once two of the surveys were at a hundred percent or at least had some college of the people who changed their thoughts or emotions after, after the narrative, uh, were college educated of some sort. Hmm. So I, I found that to be interesting. It may be that people, uh, I'm not sure, but maybe people with, with more education, uh, are more willing to change their, thoughts and emotions after having new information, you know? Yeah. Well, my own experience with education is that um, you have to unlearn as much as you learn. So you have to oftentimes drop your preconceived notions in order to make room for um, what is becoming true. And I think you hit the nail on the head, too. I mean, when you talk about the way that we remember things, the way our human brain works, it always builds upon a foundation that it's already familiar with. And so if we get in new information, we try to put it into that foundation. Um, but 
uh, education, uh, especially like when you get into college education, you you end up, in my own experience, anyways, is you you. I personally felt dumber getting out of college than when I went into college, right? I was a 17, 18-year-old <laughs> kid that thought I knew everything, and I come out, I think I know nothing. But it's it's because of all that unlearning I had to do, and that, that becomes a process. Um, I, I, I guess I'm just confirming what you're saying here, but, you know, I, I, I program computers all day long, and I'm constantly struggling with new techniques and new languages for, for programming computers, and um, you know, I'm way up there now. I'm, I'm getting ready to retire soon. But one thing I find out is that the younger people, not always, but but oftentimes they rely on things they learned years ago. And I keep having to coach them and say, forget about that. Stop thinking about that stuff because things have changed. You're, you're, you're missing the boat. You need to get, you know, you, you don't want to be really wild and, and go out and believe everything you see. But on the other hand, you have to you have to constantly change, challenge your mind to change things. And I think that's the way that um, people who are educated in college will will more often than not probably um, be used to doing that sort of thing, doing it subconsciously without even thinking about it. Yeah, but see, if if we get uh, a bad actor as as elected in, you know, someone who's corrupt, um, then they they can use... Um, that is a tool of manipulation. Um, if they use their, if they use fear and anxiety and if you believe them, right. Because I, I, I just couldn't understand why all, all the college educated people were voting for Trump because not everybody, not all those people are, are, are bad people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? I, I, I just couldn't understand it. I just couldn't understand it. Um, and you know, when I was a kid, I never understood how a whole country, um, you know, took part in the Holocaust. It, it, it was just so amazing to me that that happened. Yeah. And, uh, so I've always wondered how that happens, how people can convince all these people to follow them, to do all these bad things. And, and, you know, all the time the people are thinking they're doing right. Well, we we've seen that time and time. You 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 cited the Holocaust in Germany, and that that's an extreme example of of uh, an entire country mobilized based upon uh, eccentricities of their leaders. Um, but the leaders, you know, I think a lot of times people in general underestimate how powerful politicians can be and especially the president people do listen to the president they they do listen to his or her words and they do take it on faith that they know what they're talking about and so it puts that person in a very uh highly responsible position but if you have a person that doesn't take that responsibility seriously uh they can do a tremendous amount of damage and we've seen this in history uh repeated in history many times in the past so it's um, yeah, I, I I'm kind of floored by this myself. Um, you you your background is different than mine, but I think we both have sort of uh, the ability to question our leaders at times. But um, oftentimes that doesn't happen with people. I just think that we need to. Life is about growth and uh, spreading love. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know and. Uh, if you're not growing, if you're being stagnant, if you're just staying in this rut and not learning or doing anything, then what are you doing? Are you, I mean, that's not life to me. To me, living is about learning and growing and changing and reinventing yourself and being better than you were yesterday mm-hmm. and learning about people different than you and, you know, doing new things and, you know, I don't know. I that's yeah. like uh, somebody said to me. They they asked me if I had trouble holding down a job because uh, I had I have so many things that I've done. I said no. I just like to challenge myself and do new things. I know some people like to do the same thing forever, and if yeah. that's what they want to do, that's cool. But you know, I'm not going to tell them they can't. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, I like to learn and grow and change and and be better than I was. I'm not perfect. I have a lot to learn. 
and uh, I think we all do. And if we face life knowing that, you know, put our ego to the side and realize that that we don't know everything and uh, we're just, you know, a soul in this world trying to make it like everybody else, Mm -hmm. um, I think it'd be a much different world. Yeah. No, I think you hit upon the the key word there is love. Yeah, that that uh, makes a big difference. That is really, I think, the the bottom line in everything. People forget that though; they lose sight of it. Well, I think we're gonna have to gonna have to wrap this up. Uh, we've. Um, it sounds like your dog needs dinner. Um, uh, we'll see. <laughs> maybe uh, need they, to walk they, or something. They they don't like people to walk around. They like to alert me, which is really good. They alert me when people are outside. Yeah. But right. sometimes it's bad when there's a lot of people outside. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have two cats. They don't alert me about anything except when they're hungry. So, <laughs> oh, well, I free feed my dogs. They they eat whenever they like. Oh, they kind of get run of the place. Yeah. <laughs> lucky dogs. <laughs> they're bossy. Well, yeah, they got uh, they got you to do everything for them. So uh, they got. I know, made. right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to. I, I tell everybody this that uh, we are not at the top of the food chain. Humans are not at the top of the food chain. Sorry to break it to you our pets are at the top of the food chain. You know, they don't have to do anything. They lay around all day and just hang out. They get fed, they get free medical, free dental, um, you know, free shelter, no taxes. I'm a vegetarian, Mm -hmm. so I I, I don't, I don't eat animals. Wow. You and me both. I'm, uh, my wife and I became vegetarians. (laughs) So I'm also for sure not at the top of the food chain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, compare you to a head of lettuce, I guess you would be, but, uh, um, I don't know where that came from. Sorry about that. Anyways, we got to wrap it but up. You know, uh, hey, you know, uh, I read I read an article about trees and mm-hmm. trees. Uh, they they pass messages to each other through the ground and they help each other out. Like when they're in a little tree community, mm-hmm. they like if one tree needs more than the other trees, the other trees will send stuff back and forth to the trees that need it. Like they help each other survive. Wow. Well, that's it's. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with the rock group Rush. They have a song called Trees. It's definitely not that way. And according to that song, they're very. Um, there's a lot of animosity between trees in that song, but I guess uh, that's not reality. Though, <laughs> well, so. I, I guess it depends on if it's an invasive species. <laughs> that's true. We've been uh, talking with Ethan Michelle Gans, a socially liberal and fiscally conservative Alliance Party candidate for the Houston, Texas City Council in 2019. Ethan Michelle, I've had a great time talking with you. Uh, we've gone way over our, our normal limit here, but I just uh, just fascinated by everything that that, uh, that you bring up here. Thank you very much for spending time with us this evening. Thank you so much. It's been great meeting you. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also see our Twitter page at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.